the sun, with all those planets revolving around it and dependent on it, can still ripen a bunch of grapes as if it had nothing else in the universe to do. These words by Galileo encapsulate the elegant sense of grounding that the discipline of astronomy has imparted to humankind across civilizations. Welcome to a brand new episode of Zeroing In. Today, we are in conversation with a very articulate astrophysicist, Professor Bhal Chandra Joshi, whose expertise spans far beyond the boundaries of multiple conventional disciplines, and he combines it all to study the inner workings of the universe on a regular basis. Professor Joshi graduated with a Bachelor's in Technology in Electrical Engineering from the Indian Institute of Technology in Rurki, and went on to complete his Master's at the Indian Institute of Technology in Mumbai. He then pursued his doctoral work in the field of astronomy and astrophysics and has been associated with the National Center for Radio Astrophysics or NCRA by TIFR in Pune for the longest part of his career, where he is currently based at as well and is a very active researcher. His fundamental research addresses the long-standing questions about neutron star systems and specifically pulsars in involved perspectives. Along with this, a major part of his career and work with the well-renowned veteran and stalwart of radio astronomy in India, Professor Govind Swaroop, was dedicated towards building the giant meter wave radio telescope, GMRT, which is the long-standing world's largest radio telescope in the given frequency range that it addresses and is truly a marvel of expertise of science and technology development in India. Our discussion with Professor Joshi took off with the fascinating ideas of astronomy playfully transitioning into the intricacies of astrophysics, discovering the process of merging the thrill of solving puzzles, fueled by a deep sense of wonder. His vivid descriptions of the complex phenomenon covered by the study of faraway objects in the universe made the worlds seem a bit more familiar, with the settling in of the ideas of uncertainty and yet the marvel of imagination. In part one of our conversation with Professor Joshi, we talk about these answers and probe more towards the deeper questions that beg for an understanding in pursuit of the understanding of our own origins. Hosting this episode with me today is Dr. Rashi Jain, who recently completed her doctoral work in astronomy and is currently pursuing her research. And I am Naman Jain for Zeroing In, the science podcast. So yeah, I, I would like to ask this question because this is something that I had been wanting to ask uh, really, really for long. Uh, so astronomy is undoubtedly one of the most fascinating and popular fields that any of the scientific areas enjoys the, the limelight of. So yeah, can you tell us about the excitement of the work that, that you chose and how did you come across this? Uh, or what did you, how did you stumble upon this? When did you decide that? Astronomy was something. Yes, yeah, so uh, I think uh, the excitement part is inevitable because uh, in astronomy, you, uh, your uh, canvas is not restricted to your city, your town, or your planet. The canvas is the entire universe, you know, and uh, the scale is so large that uh, it's a humbling experience, purely philosophically, to work in astronomy. And uh, there is no limit to uh, understanding the natural phenomenology. There is no limit 
to applying physics, whether it is here on earth or in the farthest uh, corners of the universe. And it's very satisfying to find that uh, the scientific laws which we have uh, discovered on our own planet, they work equally well in the, in the farthest reaches of the universe. And uh, uh, yet, we don't know so much about the universe. Okay, so, so that's the excitement of astronomy. In addition, astronomy is one of the rare fields in which all branches of science combine themselves together. Whether you talk of physics, whether you talk of biology, you talk of chemistry, or you talk of mathematics. Okay, all of these find deep applications uh, in the in astronomy, and I think that's what is really very really exciting about it. Uh, as regards to how I drifted into it, it's a fairly long story. Uh, my grandfather uh, was a professor of Sanskrit in Banaras Hindu University uh, several years back. And my father, who was also a professor of English, had no science background, but they used to prepare what is known as Panchank, okay? uh, the almanacs, the Indian almanac. And there was a fair bit of mathematics which went into predicting the positions of the planets uh, in, the, uh, in the Panchang. And uh, seeing that as a small child, I sort of developed an interest in that mathematics. And it was quite fascinating that you could actually say where Venus or where uh, Mars would be uh, by doing some simple mathematical calculations. Okay, uh, So that was the, I think, initial... Uh, thing which sparked interest in astronomy. But more importantly, I was very lucky and blessed that when I was a small child, many of Indian physicists and scientists, they uh, felt like communicating to public large and especially to young students. Okay? And they wrote very simple books explaining physics and astronomy. And we had, uh, uh, which still exists, we had an agency called National Book Trust which brought small booklets explaining space sciences as well as uh, physics and astronomy. And I was blessed that my father purchased a whole set of these. And uh, in school, I uh, read these as extracurricular things and that sparked the interest further. Uh, when I went for my engineering uh, in uh, Roorkee, we had a club called Stargazing Club. And uh, there was no telescope there except for a small three-inch telescope. So three of us, we decided to build a bigger telescope with the help of the UP State Observatory, the then UP State Observatory. Now it's called ARIES. And telescope there. And uh, that's the first time I realized that you could actually use engineering knowledge to build instruments for doing and so on. But I... I really didn't drift into astronomy even then. I took up a job and I did a job for four to five years and astronomy was more of a passion, more of an interest and a hobby till I uh, happened to listen to a colloquium in IIT Pawai where I was doing my master's uh, by Dr. Narlikar where he made a very fervent appeal to all engineers to come and help in building the world's largest telescope near Pune. Uh, which Professor Saroop was building at that point of time. And I think over the next one year, slowly and gradually, Professor sort of, uh, uh, sort of brainwashed me into uh, combining my engineering skills 
with building uh, with helping building this uh, big telescope and i have been all along in the rest of my life been there uh, helping in sort of running that instrument and uh, trying to bring some good science out of that so so it was not that i intended to go into astronomy when i was in school or was in college just like all of us youngsters i was not sure what i would like to do so i dabbled in various fields and wherever it took my fancy but at some point of time in life i think all those things came together in in form of what i would have liked to do the most and since then i have been doing that so i think that's the journey which i followed which is not the standard journey which anyway i and like uh, today when most youngsters know exactly where they want to go we our generation was not like that we innovated we experimented we explored sometimes made mistakes sometimes went in the right direction but uh, as long as you stuck to what uh, excites you and what uh, is your passion i think eventually you reach where you want to reach that's i think that's what sort of happened so i never planned any of this but it happened that was a very awesome and a fascinating story sir i actually myself come from electrical uh, engineering background and then i switched to astronomy so your story is it's very inspirational so um, do you still uh, have uh, do you still use your engineering knowledge uh, sometimes to Uh, uh, yes. 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 Very much so. Uh, so in uh, when I was doing my B Tech in uh, IIT Roorkee, uh, the three courses which uh, apart from physics and science, the three courses I liked the most were computer science on one hand. Computers were very new in those days. There were no microprocessors were just coming in, uh, and uh, the other thing was the communication theory, which had a lot of signal processing. fast fourier transforms and so on and the third thing was electromagnetism okay uh, i liked the electromagnetism very much because uh, the whole structure of the course was so well rounded uh, and i remember i spent uh, about two weeks to go from cover to cover in the uh, in the uh, the book by hd kraus who was also a radio astronomer and it was quite fascinating and same thing was fascinating about the the mathematics of the signal processing in the communication systems and eventually i ended up doing a project on controls uh, we actually built uh, as part of our uh, btech project one of the first microprocessor based signaling system uh, uh, based uh, modeled on the delhi railway stations uh, we actually went on a field trip and did all that so that's how i sort of uh, learned many of these things and as i said i and any of these things i went where my fancy took me uh when i was doing my masters i was actually working on control theory and uh, when this discussion about the 45 meter large telescopes uh, to be built as part of giant meter wave radio telescope came uh, it appeared to me that i can apply this in the control and precision control of the radio telescopes and i discussed this with professor ruk who was very much excited and so excited me in doing this so my thesis actually turned out to be a design of the full control system okay so wow. in 1990s that was the first embedded uh, kind of an application which was there in the control of these 
and uh, we have continued to sort of improve upon that so when i first uh, went into astronomy that was where i was applying the engineering knowledge that is the control systems control of large structures which essentially is also happens in many of the satellite and space systems okay so the precision control is a very very important aspects uh, as far as the uh, space sciences are concerned so that remains to be the main engineering application on which i have been sort of working i still look after the control aspects in gmrt but the signal processing came in very handy because pulsars are pulse signals so they have a fundamental and they have uh, multiples harmonics of that and the way you discover a neutron star or a pulsar is by going into the frequency domain by taking a fast fourier transform and uh, uh, checking for the periodic signal against the ever present noise by uh, looking at the signal in the frequency domain and since communication systems you use frequency domain very often the theory and the mathematics was uh, well understood so application of that in searching pulsars was something which uh, was a straightforward thing for for me to understand and it helped me got in doing that uh, it's not just that uh, various different type of phenomenology for example the variety of single pulses which you see in pulsars uh, analysis of these single pulses to understand why there is this variability also requires a lot of signal processing and all this can uh, is direct application of engineering techniques into the uh, into the astronomy uh in control systems you have uh uh you uh, solve for the dynamics of systems uh in a simple uh, mathematical way which uses linear algebra and matrices uh putting the dynamical equations into first order differential equations and that is called as a state space formulation of uh, systems and uh, that's the best way to uh, analyze a control system which could be a single input multiple output or a multiple input multiple output mimo kind of a system so the same thing it so happens happens in many of the dynamical system astrophysical dynamical systems so you can use generalized coordinates the way you use in state space in control systems in this so understanding that theory becomes very easy if if you have an engineering background with the uh, appropriate uh, mathematics there that's another application uh, which uh, uh, sort of helped me to understand some of the things uh, much better so i think uh, there is a wide scope of application of engineering techniques in astronomy apart from the instrument building so i have not even touched upon the instrument building so antennas themselves or any detector for that matter whether it is a x ray detector or any other detector is an engineering system and uh, a lot of electronics goes into making these instruments work the way they work today and uh, again uh, a direct application of uh, uh, engineering skills which you learn as an engineer can be in developing these instruments and so on and Uh, uh i have done that to some extent in in, in a certain limited uh, sphere uh, not too much uh, because i sort of went into control systems but uh, at least it helps me in understanding the instruments very well so so i would say that uh, 
the confluence of the engineering techniques and the astrophysics is can be a very useful confluence and uh, if you uh, combine them together it could be a very fruitful and satisfying experience quite an insight was it actually yeah was yeah. it also exciting to see all the electromagnetic uh, theories in action uh, studying pulsar you get so many exotic phenomena happening so combining control system signal system everything that you were interested in and also electromagnetic theory so was it this that derived you uh, that drove you to uh, use your uh, engineering knowledge but go towards astrophysics instead of staying in the technical part right. yes that's true so uh, well uh, i would say that i always uh, wanted to do something in astronomy so Uh, so as i said uh, uh, that was something which i wanted to do uh, ever since i did those first calculations to find out the positions of the planets but uh, whether this will all uh, sort of combine together i was not sure okay. and uh, that was not something which i planned but it eventually sort of worked out okay. i took a very circuitous route to reach there but but when i did reach there i found that everything which i had learned uh, not, not, not nothing of that went waste everything was useful in some extent or other and i think this is true whether you do work in astronomy or any other field okay everything which you learn can be used in in your career at some point of time or other okay you should not forget what you have learned that's the only thing so it was not planned but it did happen like that uh, along this line of circuit uh, circuital routes uh, i i mean i think we would like to map out each part that you mentioned so easily and so 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 briefly uh, maybe we can kind of go back and start with with the very beginning uh, so i just wanted to ask you about uh, like from the very beginning of of, of the in, in context with the life of stars uh where do we when do we get pulsars basically so maybe from how these stars are evolving and till the neutron star and yeah so uh so a typical stellar life is basically a struggle between two dominant forces one is the omnipotent force of gravity so the entire weight of the star is trying to collapse the star to a single point and this is being uh, fought by the pressure of the gas inside the star and not just the pressure of the gas but also any radiation which is being generated at the in the internals of the star and radiation is generated by the nuclear fusion at the centers of the star so both the radiation and gas pressure they balance the gravity of the star and that is how the star lives but this can only happen till the time the nuclear fuel inside the star is uh, uh, still available and there comes a time in the uh, fusion cycle where you need to supply energy for further fusion and that happens when you have synthesized elements up to iron so at iron 56 beyond iron 56 uh, the nuclear reactions become become endothermic instead of exothermic so instead of supplying energy you they start taking in energy which so means that the radiation pressure is suddenly switched off and uh, because the radiation pressure is switched off the star collapses now depending 
the mass of the progenitor star, the star from which the end product would be produced, you can have different types of entities. Professor Chandrasekhar proposed at the time quantum mechanics was first discovered in 1930s that uh, collapse of a sun-like star would end up in a star which is predominantly supported by pressures of degenerate electrons and that is known as white dwarf. But if you have a more massive star, 8 times to 10 times the mass of the sun, then the collapse cannot be prevented by the electron degeneracy pressure. On the other hand, the electrons combine with protons because a reaction called inverse beta decay reaction becomes energetically favorable and this combination produces a neutron-rich material. So the uh, star collapses to an end product, which is a neutron star. More massive stars, of course, will collapse to a singularity called black hole. So neutron stars somewhere between white dwarf and black hole. And when this collapse happens, uh, to preserve for conservation of energy, which is also known as Virial theorem, the outer part of the star is blown away and the inner part collapses to a 10 kilometer diameter, very compact star of mass, which is about one and a half times the mass of the sun. And that compact core is uh, neutron rich, and that is the neutron star. The outer shell is blown away in an explosion, which is known as supernova explosion. And uh, the best example of supernova, uh, supernova exploded star is the Crab Nebula, which you can see through a telescope. Okay, It's a very tiny nebula and so on, and houses a 33 millisecond uh, pulsar inside that. Now, these stars were proposed in 32 by Bard and Zwicky, but they were never discovered because they were supposed to be fairly cold. And uh, most of the stellar radiation is what is known as black body radiation. It is by virtue of the temperature of the star. And cold stars like this uh, would produce very little uh, intensity and so will not be visible in the visible light. So people didn't expect them to see till uh, Dame Jocelyn Bell and Professor Anthony Huish uh, discovered a very strange periodic signal in 1967, uh, which, is, uh, which was the first pulsar discovered called CP1919. And with one and one, one third second period, they found a completely new uh, star. And with a very interesting way of eliminating possibilities, they came to the conclusion that this is the elusive neutron star. So that was the first time a pulsar neutron star connection was made. And since then, in the last 54 years of pulsar astronomy, about 2,900 of these objects have been discovered. Uh, majority of them are, are in own galaxy Milky Way, although there are about 30-35 in a satellite galaxy known as the Large Magellanic Cloud, but most of them are galactic objects and they are all collapsed, uh, collapsed compact stars which have been formed from 7 to say about 12 solar mass uh, progenitor stars. And they were born in the death of a particular star. So that is the origin of a pulsar. Uh, uh, just, just one question, which, which really, really, uh, I mean, uh, irks us here, is that how did we actually conclude that it was indeed a neutron star? I mean, we saw this pulsar, which seemed to be very fascinating, uh, because, I mean, it seems extremely fascinating that it rotates and, and has such a precise period. 
but yeah, I mean, how did we conclude that it was a neutron star indeed? Yeah, th that's a very good question. In fact, that's a question which illustrates the scientific method which we use. You know, astronomy is a very different type of science. Uh, you can't touch the object which you are studying. You can't even go near the object which you are studying. They are millions of light years away. So there is no way you can control the experiment which you are doing. It's an observational science, unlike, say, terrestrial physics. So, for example, if you are doing an experiment in Large Hadron Collider in CERN, you can actually tweak the magnetic fields. You can tweak all kinds of conditions to do the experiment which you want. Those are controlled experiments in physics. Astronomy, astrophysics, on the other hand, there is no control. So you have to use a series of logical reasoning to come to a particular conclusion or understanding about an astrophysical objects. And the story of how people said that this pulsar is a neutron star is, is one very good illustration of that. So the first pulsar, which was discovered, as I said, had a one, one third second period. Okay. And uh, this periodicity can come by one of the three mechanisms. Either it could be a star which is oscillating, that is, it's expanding and shrinking. So its brightness is periodically changing. Or it could be rotation of the star. So there is a bright spot on the star and every time it rotates, you see the bright part as a pulse. Or it could be because of a, an eclipse in a binary system. That means uh, when the star is visible to you, you see a see light and when it goes behind its companion, you don't see any light. So there are three mechanisms by which you can explain the pulsation. For periods of one second, uh, the eclipse model already was uh, 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 very difficult to explain. Even the oscillation model was difficult to explain because oscillation is proportional to the inverse of the square root of the density. And uh, with, with that kind of a period, you would have to come to densities which were very, very high. So already, purely from the oscillation model, we knew that the density of the star has to be very large. All this confusion became uh, much clearer when people discovered the Crab Pulsar, which was 33 milliseconds. Okay. So it was, it was at least 25% or much less uh, uh, much less periodicity than, than the first pulsar which was discovered. And that meant that uh, if you take the binary model, you would have to have the companion raising the surface of the other star and the companion will be disrupted by the tidal forces. So if you apply normal laws of physics, the binary system was ruled out. The oscillating system gave a density which, which, was, which could not have been possible at all. So that was ruled out. So you are left with rotation. And there were only two objects which could produce this kind of rotation. One was white dwarf and the other was neutron star. White dwarfs were seen optically. Neutron stars were not seen. And the white dwarf periodicity, because given the density of the white dwarf, which is about 10 to the power uh, uh, is much smaller compared to neutron stars. It was not possible to explain uh, pulsar. So finally, uh, Bell, Pilkington, and Hewish, who wrote a nature paper on this, used this uh, reasoning to tie down the pulsars to a rotating neutron star. So that's how we know that it is a new, uh, rotating neutron star. And if you now equate the loss of energy from the star from the dipole radiation, you can actually find out that the magnetic field is super strong. 
it is 10 to 7 tesla or 10 to the power 12 gauss okay so they are one of the highest magnetized uh, objects in the universe so that's how our current broad understanding of pulsars has come about that pulsars are rotating neutron stars which are highly magnetized uh, like you said, uh, the, whatever you told about the pulsars, uh, I'm very curious to know, are all neutron stars pulsars? Uh, or there's some special class of neutron star? Yeah, that's a good question. So all neutron stars should be pulsars, but they uh, there can be two. Uh, you don't see all of them as pulsars. And the simplest reason would be that the pulse widths are narrow. So for a one second pulsar, the pulse width is typically of the order of tens of millisecond, which means that the radio beam, which is sweeping the sky towards you, is very narrow. So if that beam is directed away from you, it may be a pulsar, but you don't see it as a pulsar. So that is the simplest explanation why you would see a very small subset of the population. But more importantly, the neutron star may not produce a radio beam. And that can happen if the rotation period goes beyond a certain uh, uh, number. That number used to be about 8 seconds up to 2000. Okay, But in the last two years, it has become as large as 87 seconds. So, so it's difficult to say what is that number right now. But uh, essentially, if it is hundreds of seconds, it will not produce a radio emission. So you may not see it as a radio pulsar. But you can still see it as an X-ray pulsar. So the same neutron star can be in a binary system in which uh, the neutron star is accreting matter from its companion. And when it accretes matter from its companion, this matter falls in the gravitational field of the neutron star, which heats up the matter. And that uh, high temperature uh, fall in falling plasma produces a black body radiation, which you see as an X-ray emission. So you could see it in other wavelengths. But Short answer to your question is that yes, every pulsar is a neutron star, but not every neutron star is a pulsar. And reason for that is selection effects. Selection effects. Okay. But uh, I also wanted to know what gives rise to the radio emission from like these pulses, radio pulses that we see. Do we know uh, what is the origin or what is the cause of these radio pulses? Yeah, that's another good question. So, uh, it's an open question. Okay, so outset, let me say that we don't really understand it very well. We have some broad picture which has been assembled over the last 53 years or so, but it's only a broad picture. The details of that mechanism are as yet unclear, despite efforts by several uh, physicists and astrophysicists. In the simplest model, uh, the uh, Emission is produced by uh, relativistically moving uh, uh, electrons and positrons. And these relativistically moving electrons and positrons move along the dipolar magnetic field lines, which are curved by nature. And they are constrained to these magnetic uh, field lines like beads on a string because the magnetic field is so strong. Okay. So, it does not allow any perpendicular energy to remain. So, all the perpendicular energy is radiated away. The, the particles move only along the curved magnetic field lines. But since the magnetic field lines are curved, they experience an acceleration and an accelerated charge radiates. 
Okay. This radiation is beamed because these, these charges are moving fairly close to the velocity of the light. So from special theory of relativity, one knows that uh, the angles, they get distorted when you go very close to the speed of light. So normally, a non-relativistically moving charged particle will radiate isotropically. That is, it will radiate in all directions. But if it is relativistically moving, this isotropic radiation, that is the radiation in all directions, gets concentrated in a direction, in, in the direction of motion of the particle. Okay. That is the beam of that particle. So since these particles are moving on the dipolar magnetic uh, uh, field lines, which are originating from the poles of the neutron star, the radiation is beamed from the pole. And the magnetic pole of the neutron star is not aligned with the rotation axis of the neutron star. So it's like a lighthouse. So just like a lighthouse beam, every time the star rotates, the beam crosses your line of sight and you see a radio flash. And that radio flash is the pulse. So this is the broad understanding. But how these relativistic particles are produced, why they are relativistic in the first place, what are the uh, magnetic field? And these particles are all escaping from the neutron star. So why does the neutron star not become positively or negatively charged? Where is the return current coming from? All these are still open questions. And the physics of many of these things is still not very well understood and uh, is subject of very active uh, area of research. So the, uh, the open, the, since the question is uh, still an open question, uh, what are the constraints? Are these observational or? Uh, yes. Uh, so uh, in the early days, first 20, 30 years, yes, they were observational constraints because pulsars are very weak radio sources. Okay, so they are very faint and you need really very large telescope to collect uh, data on these uh, uh, radio pulses. But as the instrumentation has become better and we have uh, devised more and more sensitive radio telescopes, uh, that limitation has actually gone away. However, the physics itself is something which is very complicated because this object is an object of extremes. You know, the magnetic fields are 10 to the power 12 Gauss. The electric fields which operate are 10 to the power 12 electron volts. So, and there is a copious pair plasma which is there in the magnetosphere of these neutron stars. So, how does this, uh, uh, how does the physics operate in these complicated conditions is not a very straightforward thing. And there are no analytically closed form solutions for that. So, typically, pulsar astrophysicists have resorted to what are known as phenomenological models. And the explanation which I gave you is more phenomenological than the physics part of that. The other part is that as, an, as a, physicist, as a physics, physicist, one would like to come out with a theory which is self-consistent. That is, I look at it from one perspective or another perspective, I get the same answer. I should, if I have a theory and I ask four questions, I should not get divergent answers. That is an inconsistent theory. Only when a theory or a hypothesis provides you answers which are consistent with each other for different questions. When you look at it from different perspectives, you say that this is an acceptable theory. 
Okay, so for example, Einstein's general theory of relativity, you ask it from different points of view, whether it is gravitational wave or whether it is uh, shrinkage of orbit or whether it is uh, special effects like uh, time delay in Shapiro uh, delay or it is a shift of frequency as the red shift and blue shift of the photons. The answers to the questions are all sort of having an origin from the theory. And so we have great amount of confidence and trust in Einstein's general theory of relativity. Okay. So a theory, a hypothesis to be an accepted theory in science has to provide consistent evidence. For pulsar emission mechanism, that is the problem. So if you invoke a certain part of physics and build a model, okay, it does not explain something else. If you build a model for that, it does not explain the original question which you came up with. So astrophysicists have not been able to come up with a consistent theory. So I told you about the charging and discharging of the pulsar. There is no model which, which has dealt with this closure of uh, current, that is current flowing out of the pulsar and coming back to it in a self-consistent manner. So difficulties are less observational. So in summary, the answer to your question is, it's less observational. We have a plethora of observations which are available. The difficulty is in terms of developing a consistent theory. So it's a theoretician's nightmare, so to say, the pulsar emission mechanism. Well, the, the way you explain this, I mean, the number of, the string of ideas that this came across one by one by one, it was so fascinating, I mean. Rather than, a, rather than a nightmare, it sounds like a theoretician's paradise in some sense. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, well, uh, the, the people who keep working on it and give up after 30 years, they feel it is a nightmare. <laughs> yes. It, it's very exciting in the sense that it keeps the uh, investigation in the physics. I have seen in the, uh, in the duration of my career, three generations of theorists come and uh -huh. come distinctive theories and they are still working on it. And part of the reason is it's with, uh, you don't get analytical solutions. Okay, so the advancement of computers and supercomputers in the last decade has meant that people have started doing simulations. And there's a completely new generation in the last decade of theorists who work with numerical computation in doing that. And they have made quite a lot of progress. So it's not that we've not understood anything. We have understood quite a lot of things, but I think there's still quite a lot of way to go which is exciting for future uh, astronomers to this is to come. That indeed is extremely fascinating. I mean, I, I really, I, I remember when, when we were in this, in this radio astronomy winter school and we were extremely fascinated by the number of times we were hearing like professors such as yourself coming up and telling us that, yeah, this is also an open question. I mean, I mean, that is probably where it piqued the curiosity that there's just so much to still do. And sometimes in schools, we are given this idea that, that, like science is saturated. Like this is where it starts. This is where it ends somehow, which, which I'm not so sure how, how, how. No, actually the, the nature of the science is such that it's a quest of understanding the natural universe around you. And quest is a never ending quest in the sense that when you go device experiment, device theories to explain one natural phenomena in the process, new questions arise. So, so it's like a Pandora's box, which you can keep opening and uh, go deeper and deeper into the entire thing. So the, uh, the cosmic microwave background radiation, when it first came, it was just a 3.7 degree Kelvin radiation all over the universe. Okay. Yeah. But that was not the end of it. 
people soon found that it is not 3.7 but with the delta plus minus to that and that led to uh, an entire development uh, of theory in terms of structure formation and so on which uh, people across my institute in ayuka have worked for several decades to sort of ex- expose that and from that came the understanding of how the galaxies and the large scale structure in the universe has formed all that came from cosmic microwave background radiation so so yes people answered the question yes 3.7 degree kelvin is the original temperature of the big bang which has cooled to this uh, things so that question was answered but it posed several new questions which led you into a further quest so so that's another thing exciting about science that there is no you can't say ki okay i i now know everything about everything and that's the end of life and till now go on one prastashram and do nothing else if you want you can keep yourself entertained excited and uh, enjoying throughout your life and you can keep working till the end of your life okay so so that's the greatest thing about science yeah i mean just just a very small detour if i may uh, on on a philosophical term did you when you started uh, probably at any point when you realized uh when you kind of ask these questions about about philosophy of of things in general did you at some point kind of have this 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 one question that you wanted to answer and then once that is answered then you'll have you'd have felt satisfied is there something like that that you that you look forward to or is there something else that drives you i mean still like no i well i was uh, it's not that i was searching for answer to one specific question but yes Uh, one would have liked to so as i said initially it was just the movement of planets uh, in the sky so i wanted to know how how and why we can predict these very well and the mathematics which was developed not by us but by several generations back in india uh, sort of provided an answer to that so from those things slowly and gradually you got interested in other uh, questions so there was no single question which sort of drives you same thing has been true about pulsars so when i actually started i started looking at emission mechanism in the early days of my research career but now i have moved on to gravitational waves uh, which which where you are using pulsars as tools not to study the pulsars themselves but the emission mechanism related things have not gone away because uh, the perfection or imperfection of these tools depends on the way the pulsars emit and some understanding of the emission of pulsars is necessary to be able to characterize the noise which you would see in a gravitational wave experiment so uh, so in in a very strange way even when you move from one field to another field you can uh, find answers to the earlier field which if you had stayed in that field you would never have found, found out okay so i think uh, from a science point of view what is satisfying is that you pose a question find an answer to that and that poses few more questions and then your quest continues it's it's more like an explorer or an adventurer where your adventure or your exploration of the world around you never stops you know it continues forever uh, i think that you are fit to do it <laughs> <laughs> this was the first of our two part episode of zeroing in with professor bhal chandra joshi zeroing in aims at bridging the pronounced gap between the young enthusiasts of science technology and research academicians 
scientists and researchers throughout the Indian subcontinent and even further. Tune in to the second part of this conversation where we discuss further with Professor Joshi about the wider horizons of this field, perspectives on the fun off and the need for multidisciplinary influences in fundamental sciences and the quintessential story of this realization of GMRT. You can visit us on zeroingin.org for all the podcasts and the latest updates. Until the next time.